When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, my name is Max. I'm from North London and you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question for this week is what is your favourite form of potato? Chips, roasted, boiled, wedges, jacket, any kind. What do you like? What do you not like? Okay, here comes the show. And remember, question everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast with myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor, Dame Baptiste, my producer friend, Howard Cohen, a.k.a. The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked, and we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Max, from North London's question, what is your favourite form of potato? Dane, it's the Ishan Akbar question. We've, we've been here before. The Ishan Akbar as existential question. That's come up many times. Has, has your feelings on potatoes changed at all recently? Is there something new in your life potato-wise? Um... Oh, yeah, only this week. As I said, uh, this week I was fortunate enough to have uh, the uh, TV chef and chef Simon Rimmer cook for me. And he made Jersey mm. Royals with some rock salt and olive drizzled in olive oil with some wild garlic, which was delicious. So it's just mm. added a uh, another variety of potato to my palate. But I had really, really thick crisps the other day. Like I'm talking like the, the, the density of like four crisps. And it's a hell of a crisp. Still, still nice. Tell you, still, still the same integrity. Um, Keeps the integrity, and uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of anyone else got any potato uh, innovations that we should know about? Let us know. Yeah, we're always, uh, always happy for new recipes. But I think I'm still steadfast. Going to remain my primary uh, favorite form of potato will still be French fries for me. Of course, and, we we all know the the truth. Yeah. Uh, but suffice to say, on this podcast, we ask and answer all the questions, don't we? Dave? Absolutely, no question is too deep fat fried, too wedged, or too waffle shaped and if you do like the show please rate and review on apple Podcasts or follow us on spotify and you'll never miss an episode or you can subscribe to us on acast the world's biggest podcast network we can hear all of the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests with that being said on today's show our guest is a legendary english comedian presenter political satirist and journalist he's been performing comedy for 35 years has written five books four play scripts has won eight awards for performing and three for his human rights work. He has taken the police to court three times and won twice. One of my favourite facts about this upcoming comedian, he has made six series of his comedy product series and three dispatches documentaries, both for Channel 4. He is touring his new live show, Hit Refresh, 50 Things About Us, which is also a podcast and was published as a book last year. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Mark Thomas. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Um, can I just also say... Yeah. Potatoes. Yeah, yeah bring of course. it. One of the 50 things about us is um, we always get this fish and chips, and I'm sure you know this, but fish and chips, you know, we always get this. What, it, there's a very strong... I asked people what they put in a British museum that they thought was genuinely British, and um, somebody said fish and chips, and I thought, it's not actually British because potatoes comes from Peru. That's where the yeah. potato originally comes from. And it wasn't hmm. bought over 
by Christopher Columbus. It wasn't brought over by Francis Drake. People think Francis Drake turned up at Queen Elizabeth's court with, you know, a little pipe of tobacco and a couple of uh, potatoes. Actually, what he turned up was with a couple of slaves, people he had kidnapped and enslaved. That's what he turned up with. Um, The potato actually came into Britain via Portugal or Spain. Right? Hmm. So that's a, a curious little fact. And the frying of potatoes and the battering of fish was brought over to Britain by Jews. Jews from Europe uh. brought in fish and chips. The first fish and chip shop, I'm trying to remember, I think it was about 1850, 1870, somewhere around there in the East End. There was the first fish and chip shop. And I just love the fact that you know that someone would have been wandering around going, I'm not eating this foreign muck. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I love, I love. <laughs> It's another one for my team. There you go, it's another one a for the Jews. Fish and chips. Come on. See? Ah. Howard. Fish and chips wrapped in newspaper. And then that's when they started saying that Jews controlled the media. Just made it from <laughs> <out> our thing. <laughs> Oh, very good. Dane, you know what, mate? It's probably time for a question, as the format of this show dictates. Before we begin, though, Mark, do you have a preferred uh, style of potato to be prepared in? Well, now I'm diabetic, so I don't actually have potato. So what Mm. I do now is I have... um, What I do love is, um, and this is slightly weird, sweet potato leaves. If you grow sweet, I've got a tiny garden, right? But I've got a couple of sweet potatoes in pots, and the leaves that come off them are the sweetest things to cook with. Mm. Oh, and they work, like, they work like kind of like spinach kind of thing. They're much, yeah, but it's much lighter and it's much, mm. and there's a sweetness to it, which is really mm. um, beautiful. Really beautiful. I, I, all I, over, all over to Mark's for dinner. Hey, then, you I guess. are welcome so. to come out to mine for dinner. Um, be because I, I try and control my diabetes with um, diet and exercise and all that. So cooking from scratch, fresh stuff, Lovely. that's what you want. Sounds Beautiful. good. Sounds good. We need to we need to do more research into this potato stuff. And yeah. <laughs> and uh, also, Mark, I think you're a cookbook short of the anthology by the sounds of it. Um, <laughs> love good books written, but I think, yeah, that might be the next way to go is a healthy living without being without the dependency on fructose or processed sugars. Well, big, big sugar. You know, it's a funny old thing, isn't it? That you, you sort of think back to the history of sugar and you think, bloody hell, sugar's still killing people. This is remarkable. Yeah. It is remarkable. It's one of the most unhealthy in every aspect uh, yeah. foodstuffs we could ever have. Yeah. No, all too well. Um, well, with that being said, um, people who are listening should know this is going to be ain't nothing sweet on this podcast. Um, so, Howard, I already start with a question. Uh, Mark mm. Thomas is our very welcome and esteemed guest. We invite you to ask the first question, which can be any question you'd like, which we like to discuss for about 15 minutes or some change. Then my producer friend, the Hizza here, would like to pose you a question, which we'd like to discuss for 15 minutes. Okay. And then, in a surprising plot twist, I'd like to pose a question to you as well for 15 minutes. And then, if you'd be so kind, you could tell our listeners where we can find out about your good works, past, present and future. How does that sound? Great. That'd be be- I'd be very happy to do that. Do you want my question now? Yes, then? please. The floor is absolutely yours. Yes, what is the point of the Labour Party? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, Mark, do me a favour, Mark. Tell us what has inspired this question in your head. Oh, mate, they're just crap. 
<laughs> I mean, there's lots and lots of reasons why I think what is the point of the Labour Party. But I think one of them is, um, you know, people used to say to me, are you, are, are you in the Labour Party? And I always go, no, I'm a socialist. Why yeah. would I be in the Labour Party? Right. But then Corbyn came along. And Corbyn, I know everyone trashes Corbyn, but he raised something really real. And he raised the chance of getting rid of student debt. He raised the chance of, of nationalising, renationalising things. He raised the chance of putting money into poor communities and actually going, poverty is caused by capitalism and we have to take it on. We have to fight it, right? It's not something that is just naturally there. I don't he, go he, he, also, he also was... Uh spearheading uh, the access to free information by free broadband as well. Yeah, I mean, you've got, that's huge. That's huge. And actually, what he dealt with, and I realised it when I was coming back from um, a gig, I did the 2017 election where May lost the majority, Mm. or or nearly lost them. She did lose the majority, technically. Um, I was doing a gig and everyone expected Corbyn to do really badly. And I was doing a gig somewhere out in the countryside. It was, you, you have to get a, a train out of Cambridge mm. to, and then get a taxi and then a, a bloke with a donkey takes you out. Do you know what I mean? It was one of the, and I was going through and they had those big Brexit boards out in farm, you know, in the farms and the fields and all of that. And I finished the gig and I, got to this and I got to the railway station and it was one of these stations and everyone at the gig was in a really down mood and one of the stations I was just sort of got there and it was raining and there was no shelter and it was there was no information boards there was just a signal box at the side and I shouted up at the bloke I said uh, excuse me mate do you, it, it do you know, am I on the right side to get to Cambridge and go to London? And he said, he said, yeah, you are, mate. And I said, uh, and I couldn't get a phone signal. So I said, do you know any, any, um, any results from the election? And he stuck his head out with a great big grin. and went, Corbyn's really doing well. <laughs> and it was a really wonderful moment. Cause I, I, like, I've known Jeremy quite a long time. And, um, there was a few years back when he'd just become a Labour leader that I, um, me and Mark Steele, a couple of others went to see him uh, just because he was up in Edinburgh and they wanted a photograph. And while he was up there, I was just mucking about. I said, Jeremy, is it true that you're giving away positions if you become prime minister? He said, yeah, what do you want? I said, railways. <laughs> he said, yours. <laughs> right. So anyway, I've, I've shouted up at this bloke. And he said, Corbyn's doing really well, big smart. I'm so excited. I get the train into Cambridge. I get a signal and I start seeing the exit pole. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm texting my mates. And I'm just going, this is incredible. This is incredible. And my mate said, you must be delighted. I said, no, no, no. I'm terrified. I could be running the railways. (laughs) (laughs) And what it was, was I felt something go through me that I hadn't felt for so long and it felt electric and it felt alive and it felt thrilling. And I realized that what I was feeling was hope Mm. and we can have resistance. We can have fighting. We can have the struggle. Those things go on all the time, but hope that's such a rare commodity. Mm. That's such the most radical thing. 
And the gentleman who's in charge at the moment is not filling you with much hope, I assume. No. I, no not and and just, to, just to add to Mark's point about hope, he, that's a name I've never heard in my entire life. And I'm pretty sure it's an anagram for some kind of alien or creation. I'm not even sure Keith Starmer's a real person. I'm just saying, have you ever met somebody else ever with the surname Starmer or the first name Keir? I haven't. Yeah, well, there's Keir Hardy, who is, you know, quite big up in the Labour Party. So, we, and, and I've got a, a nephew called Keir. So Keir, I'm all right with. Starmer, um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But the, 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 the Sir Keir Starmer. Hmm. Um. But the, the, the reality of the situation to me is, as in, as in, you know, your your question is is a very valid one. Why this has happened and why we're at this point in time is is obvious to me, which is that you know, like him or hate him, Tony Blair was a massive success, probably one of the most successful politicians in the history of the world. Really, I mean, it was a remarkable story after all those years that the the, the Conservatives had. So after Tony Blair. It would be fair to say there hasn't been a success. There was obviously a form of success with Corbyn, but he never got power. So what they've done is try and work out how do we get another Tony Blair? And that's why we're in this situation with, with Keir Starmer. I guess the point of the Labour Party, it's a great, it's a good question because it's like the contemporary Labour Party as it exists now, what are its political values? That's, that's the, and, and once you kind of begin to look at those in terms of, you know, empowering workers and assuring workers' rights and, you know, having an equal distribution of resources throughout a country, then for me, I look at some somebody like Jeremy Corbyn and it's like, this doesn't even look like the right party for you in the first place. It looks like you're, you're with, the, with the wrong party. And even though despite the fact that he, in work and deeds and in terms of assembly and narrative, represents more uh, left and, or more socialist and humanist values, it's strange that he seems to be so out of place with the Labour Party. So really, the question is for most people: is what what does the Labour Party represent now? What what would you what would you guys say it would be their values now? What would be their you know primary manifest? Yeah, I mean this is the interesting thing because you've you've cited uh, uh, you, you know there's a mention of Tony Blair, Tony Blair being a successful politician, but he start he it was him that led the wedge into student fees. It was him that created the privatised um, the pe- the the um, what do you call it? The 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 the, the PFI schemes mm. uh, that allowed our hospitals to be built and owned by consortiums, paid for by rent. We rent hospitals from consortiums who are registered offshore. So we're renting the hospitals from people who don't even pay tax. Mm. I suppose when I was saying successful, Mark, when I was saying successful, I just I just I just think I'm saying that he won. He won the elections. Well, he did and, win. And, he did yeah, win. But know. I mean, that there was also the point that. I think this is the thing about the system is created to, in such a way that the Tories naturally assume power, that yeah. the media naturally assumes they will have power. There is a structural assumption within the establishment that the Tories will have power. And what's interesting is, is after Thatcher and Major, the corruption, the level of corruption that existed was so big that people had just had enough of it and the Tories had lost. Paddy Ashdown talks about Tony Blair when he um, went approaching that first election victory and he said he walked towards it like he was holding a Ming vase mm. rather than sprint towards it with a series of, of radical transformative ideas. 
what he did was so much more of the same. The one thing I think that, that they did do was sure start. Yeah. Right. Giving kids sure start was a really, really important thing because it meant that literacy increases. Now, literacy is a key to, to people's lives. I mean, it really, really is. You look at the link between illiteracy and, and prison. It's enormous. It's a lot, is it, in, in America, I think it's like one in three in, inmates are functionally. Well, one in five Americans are functionally illiterate. So, and that's amazing. Yeah, 16 million Americans can't read the directions on their own medication. Uh, and I think it was oh, about 63 million Americans and about 60 million Americans also voted for Donald Trump. One in five. And yes, that's one in five. And then in the UK, like English people, working class English people form the largest demographic of the illiterate in this country, which is weird considering it's the most prevalent language through the merit of imperialism throughout the world, that the people that live in the country, which have purported, you know, English and anglicized values to the world don't understand that same language if it's presented to them. I mean, it's amazing. I find it amazing. There's actually, did you know that the, the, you know, the new economics foundation, they did a report when um, Cameron got rid of Shawstar and the report was about, you can calculate literacy. You can, that's how it works. You can measure how many people are literate, how many people are illiterate. And so they saw the impact that Shawstar had on literacy. Now, if we know that there's a link between illiteracy and prison, right, what you can do is therefore say, right, if you abolish Shawstar, we see illiteracy rising. And with that rising illiteracy, we can expect the prison population to rise alongside it. And it costs about 45, 50 grand a year to keep someone in prison. Yeah, more than it does to go to so Eton. Even from a capitalist viewpoint, this is economically illogical. Because I, can I can, can I jump in there, more, Mark? And the reason please, and the please. reason for that is is because capitalism is not a sound economic system. Now that's you. the thing is that you're, you you use this is a way I think is that for somebody who would be dealing, I guess, what would be we more accurately referred to as commercialism. The idea would be that you would get a higher return on your investment. So if you, for example, to invest in a workforce or a proletariat and provide them with the basic numeracy and literacy skills, they'll be able to more effectively contribute as an efficient member of said proletariat to your overall uh, revenue. The thing is, is that capitalism is a faith-based system which doesn't take into account or cannot humanize this workforce or take into account resource exploitation and how finite that is. So essentially you have people who most capitalists are almost like religious zealots. And they're like, well, I have money. And so that predisposes me to understand that I'm better than most people. And it means that I can buy my way out of criminality. But it means the exchange in that is, is that I force other people to become criminals and I profit from their suffering. And then long term, I watch the decay of my society by continuing to incubate this entire, uh, I suppose, culture of criminality and recidivism and therefore watch it eat away at my society like a cancer. But that's okay, because I can afford a yacht. Now, to anybody else, that's illogical, but that's how capitalism works. Do you know, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I've always, it's very weird, because I I think you're right. There's, There's a very interesting thing, which is why on earth do we use GDP as a measurement of success, yeah. right? It's, or GVA as it's now known, gross value added, right? So the amount of economic activity happening within the country, why is that used? And I've long said this, why is that used as a measurement for success? Because all you're measuring is economic activity. It's not actually, right, 
a car crash is really good for the economy. Yeah. If you look at it and go, okay, let's look at the car crash. What does it do? First of all, you've got um, you've got the police and the ambulance and the fire brigade that are called out in the emergency service. So this is employment for them, right? And it's creating jobs. It's creating activity. You've got all the equipment that they need for everything from fire foam and bolt cutters. Plus, you've got like traffic cones and you've got all the lights and the flashing stuff that you need to get around the car. Then, of course, right, you've got the repairs to the car. So you've got the car manufacturers, you've got glass manufacturers, you've got all the people who tow the thing away, you've got the people who actually repair it. So you've got this enormous activity. Then if you're lucky, someone's taken to hospital. So you're actually employing doctors and nurses and cleaners and admin. And then if you're really lucky, it's a serious accident. So you've got drugs and bandages and sutures and needles. You've got all the, if you're really lucky, then you bring in sort of like the gift card industry. Thank you, get well soon. Then you get teddy bears. Don't forget forget who's at the top of the pyramid insurance companies because they get paid either way they yeah they pay they get paid either way because they get paid they'll get a payout where they have money and they've got all their interest accruing from the motor insurance database they can pay with that plus they can increase the premiums so the money can be made either way but don't forget most of all if nothing happens they get paid anyway because you've got to pay insurance in the event that you have a car crash but here's the here's the gig all this economic activity from traffic directors and cones through to funeral directors and grave diggers Mm -hmm. occurs on the back of a car crash, but no one will see a car crash and instinctively think the economy is looking up. Exactly. Right? Because we have a degree of morality that says we care for our fellow beings. And that's the gig. Capitalism, the way that we measure things, is actually inherently at odds with who we yeah, are. Yeah, it's amoral and is and is always going to be ultimately work uh, to the detriment of society because when you're trying to measure economic, when you're trying to measure uh, well-being and human well-being based on a, G, as a, a metric like GVA, it means that you have, you, all you need to do is think about is the bottom line. So then you understand why you have a thriving war economy in the UK because it's like if we continue to sell defence and, and torture implements, then our GVA does increase. But then at the same time, then we have to turn around and tell our populace that the problem is with immigration. But then we also live within an economy which also depends on immigration and the exploitation of said immigrants. And so essentially, you're watching the snake eat its own tail in order to like satiate itself. And that's why I think it's very strange. This is the whole thing. When, when, I, when I go on stage right now, and, and I, I don't want Tories in the room. Yeah. I don't want Tories in the room because they know what they are. They know what they've done. Yeah. And the thing is, you get people going, well, we didn't know it would be like this. And you go, what do you mean you didn't know? It's going, no, we didn't know it was going to be like What did you think it was? Like? Well, I thought we were just going to get control. What do you mean control? I thought we were going to shut down the borders. That's what. And what they say, it's like all of this stuff, you know, it's just like, oh, you didn't think it was going to come and get you. Yeah, of course. Hmm. I mean, this is, and this is part of the, uh, the quasi-religious doctrine of capitalism is that, oh, I can enjoy all of this opulence and I can enjoy having access to exotic fruits that are not indigenous to my country and have them on my doorstep. And there can be no ecological or economic implications of any of this. I can continue to pollute my seas and I can continue to see these ecological disasters like flooding and drought happen in other parts of the country. And it doesn't occur to me that the human spirit and natural survival instinct will drive people to move to another place of economic prosperity in order to just literally survive. So when you... 
I think you're absolutely right. And this is the thing about it. I mean, I, I think the illogical is just it's fucking. Well, labor, labor, labor was supposed to at least provide some kind of benefit. So if inevitably we are as a civilization with human beings, I may be hurting towards this point where we have to transition our way of living outside of bipartisan polit- politics, as well as uh, a capitalist or a commercialist economy, at least that would be tempered whereby we would say to people, for example, okay, yeah, at this point, rich and poor are going to exist because the whole of the planet is somewhat beholden to this system of global capitalism. But there needs to be some level of regulation whereby if you are given money for people to make fucking PPE so we don't die from a pandemic, you can't give it to a fucking confectioner to make. Like that's, well, that's what Labour's role well, used to be. Or Labour's role used to be if you continue to excessively provide money or if you have Margaret Thatcher's son trying to finance a coup in Equatorial Guinea, then the people that are fleeing the impending bloodshed that results from these coups and political instability are going to go somewhere where they think they're going to be safe. Well, if you don't want people to come to your country for being safe, don't start the name of your country with fucking great. Because if I was living in a country below the Sahara and I was looking for somewhere to live and I was like, where will my family be safe? And there's only one country that says, we're great. Before they even say anything else, I'd be like, that would be a good place to start. And then if you rebrand it as United, these are adjectives you taught me are positive things. So that's probably where I'm going to go. Also, if I'm even more acknowledged and I know the fact that you sell weapons to these countries, I probably should go to the country selling the weapons because I'm going to be least likely to experience any kind of belligerence over there in the same way that even though this country claims to be overrun and we also had the fear at the turn of the century of islamophobia and fear of terrorism i feel like it's going to be hard to sell that idea when there's a fucking edgeware road in london <laughs> you would just go there or brick lane i mean it, it, what i find because you got you mentioned loads and loads of things there which is which are really exciting uh, uh, to, to look at um th- th- there's a whole range of things the idea that people fleeing torture and oppression. Well, first of all, the word Great Britain. Great originally was brought in um, to reflect the size. Oh. And it was compared to Brittany. Oh. Right? As in Great Britain and smaller Britain. So actually, we should be referred to as Upper Britain and Brittany should be called Lower Britain. If you were more, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, definitely, yeah. The great as a descriptor was just adapted from that to mean that we're superb. Um, and I've often said to people, you know, we don't, we, you, you, why would you have Great Britain? If you're actually describing it, we'd be fair to middling Britain <laughs> or doing all right Britain or mustn't grumble Britain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what we, oh, what about that weather? Britain that's what we'd be right but the thing about it and this is the interesting thing that I mentioned in the book is the fact that we're not an island we're not an island um because technically there was a time when the when Penzance the area now known as Penzance in Cornwall was connected all the way through to the eastern seaboard of Russia there's one contiguous landmass, and we split away from it so technically we're an archipelago we are technically the French Mm. archipelago I am willing to tell them that we are the French archipelago. <laughs> Some of them would um, like it. As you know, there's a lot of weird, there's a, that weird fetishization of French culture amongst the elites anyway. So it'd probably be a decent sell to get underneath the radar. I think, I think we could go for the Atlantic archipelago. Oh, that sounds to good too. Yeah. That's a good, that's, that's a really good name as well. Yeah, I like that. It's got a goodness to it. It does, it, yeah, yeah. 
there's something good. Or my other suggestion was that we rename ourselves the Eastern Irish Isles. <laughs> <laughs> I like that as well. Uh. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the reward-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I think it's, it, 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 it's so interesting, Mark. And I think the, the tangent that I take on this, this, you know, what's the point of labor? The, the reason there isn't a point of labor is because it's had to become... Tory light to survive so therefore my question to you is what what's next then because there's gonna to have to be something different there's gonna to have to be something that comes I've said to Dane a number of times on this show I believe I might be dead by the time this happens but like not I'm not dying by the way I'm just saying that, you know it might be a, a 50 60 how many years until we see Howard, something being, will come I, mean, I believe you're being somewhat of a nihilist Be- believe, believe in change <laughs> Howard <laughs> well I do believe in change but I think it's going to take time to gestate and I think something different is going to come out of the left that that that, that offers an alternative to this meandering nothingness that currently exists where you look at Biden Keir Starmer even Macron as well. I mean, I, I'm not a massive fan of any of those people. Yet they represent some form of the left that just doesn't doesn't really seem to exist, does it? What is it? It's not it's not offering anyone anything. That's a really good point you've made, Howard, which excited me so much. Sorry, because no, the, the problem is, is that it's almost this. Uh, uh, it's the horizontal orientation of politics where we think about it in a bipartisan way, where we still say left or right, when really mm. we should be. Uh, viewing and discussing our politics from the perspective that it's vertical, because essentially what we know is that irrespective of where any of these major parties sit on the, on the spectrum, they are all beholden to um, courtocracy or plutocracy. They all, like you said, have to in some way be beholden to um, cor- corporations in order for them to even remain, I suppose, visu- visibly competitive in the eyes of the voting, um, um, the voting, voting caucus. So I think the first thing that needs to change is the bipartisan political structure. I think, you know, a lot of people have alluded to the fact that our first past the post system and uh, is a problem. Majority representation is a problem where if the the uh, totality of opposition to, for example, Tory policies, um, even if they are more of the majority because they're separate parties, those various constituencies and parties will still be not considered a majority in comparison to um the Tory party's policies. So majority representation is another issue. So I think what's next is really a revision of the entirety of the bipartisan political spectrum. The first thing we need to do is to stop um, making it a given and making it an axiomatic that Labour is awarded the belief of the proletariat or working class when they, in many ways, 
just both aesthetically and politically do not represent the needs of the working class. So because the because that's where the name Labour comes from in the first place. But a lot of people now who are representatives within Labour, some people do have working class origins, but a lot of people have really have, well, they're educated in the same places as their Tory counterparts. And some of them are the same clubs. It, it, I mean, this is the interesting thing, I think. If you look at when you say, okay, what happens with the left? The traditional left-wing groups, whether it's the Socialist Worker Party or what used to be the Revolutionary Communist Party or the Socialist Party, they had what, what, what they became sort of slightly obsessed with was poaching members from each other so they could grow, mm. right? So they, <clears throat> and, and the idea of recruitment, you know, really was, it, it wasn't about working class organising, mm and supporting working class organizing uh, by which I mean, showing solidarity, which is not leadership. It is following solidarity. You follow what other people want. So for me, what's interesting is all the various things that are happening from the grassroots. That's where the interesting stuff is happening, right? The fact that labor produces a document, produces a thing slash um, the other day, slagging off, um, the um, uh, the Lib Dems because they're soft on drugs. And you go, what? what's the matter with that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. like we've created a criminalised group of people. We've criminalised so many people because of one type of drug. But anyway, the, the, the fact that they went for that very reactionary um, position, sh- uh, it, it's just one small example of the pointlessness of them and how they reinforce the status quo. Well, it's fascinating you have got unions happening in McDonald's mm. that are being organized and led by young McDonald's workers. You've got Black Lives Matter, which is being organized and led by young black people who are just uh, 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 the traditional left wing. They were completely unaware this was on the radar. Yeah. And suddenly you've got this sus, I mean, really sus political group of people who are making decisions which are way ahead of most of the left, right? And then you've got, so you've got that happening. You've got the unionization, you know, you've got militancy uh, happening. Yeah, unionization at Amazon. And I would say even just before the pandemic, nobody even thought that could happen. And now you've had unionization with Amazon. Right. You've got unions happening with Amazon. You've got the way that people reacted to the P&O ferries. People were really aghast and shocked at that. But you've also got, like, all the cleaners, uh, the RMT are representing the cleaners, and they're going on strike on the tubes. That is really exciting that you're getting. And you've got the UVW, which is the United Voice of the World, which is a grassroots trade union that comes mainly from immigrant workers. This is hugely thrilling. Now, when you then look at, the other things which are happening. So if you look at um, renters unions and you look at the way that people are coming together over the fight for rent, if you look at it, like, like I, I'm a, I'm a supporter of AFC Wimbledon. So AFC Wimbledon was a football club that had its ground sold 20 odd years ago and it was sold to property developers and they moved the club to Milton Keynes, local fans. I did the benefit for this in 2002, right? Me and Kevin Day and Mark Steele did this benefit to raise money for the Dons Trust to form AFC Wimbledon, a fan-owned football club, right? We've gone through seven divisions because we got kicked down to the bottom. We've gone through seven divisions and this season is the first season. professionals, yeah, about to go pro, yeah, yeah. Right? It's Plough Lane. We've built our own stadium, 
right? It's a fan-owned club and we built our own stadium 250 yards from the site of the original. And the thing about this is there are 47 fan-owned football clubs in the English pyramid. 47, right? If you look at cinemas, right, there are 650-odd community cinemas. All these things are happening. All this stuff is going on. Sounds a little bit like taking power back, isn't it? I don't know. Is that a <laughs> phrase? Yes, Sorry, we don't say that phrase. That phrase isn't popular. They've ruined that phrase. It's a phrase that's been commodified and repackaged, unfortunately. But um, no, I mean, that's that's very encouraging. And so, yeah, it seems a new a new uh, left is forming in uh, the wake of the old one. And maybe sometimes, I think sometimes that's what it takes. I think that there were a lot, uh, when we ponder, you know, the universal health care that arose out of the Second World War, We um, some workers' rights that were asserted opposing the poll tax, you know, um, a lot of our freedoms are things that we probably take for granted because, you know, we lived in times of relative peace within the West and, you know, you had moderate to, or, to right or right of centre politicians like Tony Blair that united us all at the time where our economy was booming. So people weren't as politi- didn't feel the need to be as politically aware because you know people never necessarily are that aware of how things are being run, only when it's not being run in their favour. And so, I yeah, think it's a really interesting thing though because what it is is it's a practical saying. Right, the, the, we can sell papers and we can argue about Marx, or we can organise. We can actually get together and organize and build something. And it's a really practical thing. And I think that's so exciting. It's so exciting because what it means is, is that people are taking control. The idea that a community is something bigger than a policy paper. The idea that a community is a living, vibrant thing that has control on its own destiny is thrilling. Mm. And 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 also kind of it's so strange how it how it feels like a distant idea from from, from previous generations, right? Which it shouldn't have. It shouldn't have. But I mean, you've got examples like Newcastle United Football Club, right? When it was owned by Mike Ashby, you've got a football club that was owned by Mister Sports Direct. So you've got a man who's one of the key components for the gig economy, for zero hours, for low pay, right? A man responsible for creating the working poor. And yet the supporters of Newcastle United, every home game collect for the food banks. Mm-hmm. Now within that, there seems to me a dynamic, which is really, really interesting that you, w- w- that the actual impetus that communities have is for communal good. Yeah. But the, 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 one of the things that excites me when you talk like this, Mark, is is there's a sense that the hierarchy and and an aversion to hierarchy will be a defining element to the next movement we see on the left, and that doesn't mean when people say communism, <laughs> which obviously sends alarm bells off across people's brains as soon as they hear the which word. Which is crazy because they most people it. have never seen a purely communist government well, in action yeah. in the first place. I, I, I just think it won't be branded as communism. But I think that the lack of hierarchy or, 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 or a, you know, limiting of hierarchy will, will define that. Because when you talk about community, communities are usually equal in the way they treat each other. And, and that's what I think people seem to have a desire for. And that's why what 
Keir Starmer or whoever the Labour Party put in won't won't give you that. I know what I'm saying. I think I think the problem is Howard is that it's people trying to contextualize um, progressive ideology within the bipartisan political spectrum, and I think you know that was one of the reasons why we saw that Jeremy Corbyn found that his place in the Labour Party was um, yeah became somewhat obsolete because the values that he has from maybe being a grassroots and being a uh, foot on the road kind of socialist does not represent the values of the Labour Party. Like he's def I always saw Jeremy Corbyn as a boots on the ground kind of guy who would be present um, present at, um, in terms of activism and present at demonstrations and present to have open debate and, you know, really and actively work in that respect as opposed to deal with the bureaucracy and um, the kind of cronyism that you see within those higher echelons of the uh, political spectrum. And I think, yeah, that decentralization um, is something that's going to have to happen en masse. Unfortunately, what we saw, actually, we'll come to that. We'll come to that, Mark. You go ahead. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned earlier is really important here, which is proportional representation, yeah. which you, you alluded to, which is if you're looking at, we're discussing two things here, which is, a political machine and the pointlessness of the Labour Party and about how it's captured by the right. And and then we've got the um, we've actually got community activism and community organising and a very practical way of bridging those two things is proportional representation. It's the fairest way of getting people involved in politics. The ruling class, they don't want people involved, yeah. which is why they've just brought in the bill to try and limit the number of people who can vote. You know, voter, I don't, you've got to have a passport or a driving license. Well, <clears throat> there are lots of people who haven't. Yeah, and most of them, most of them are designed to be supporters of, of, of the elite anyway, because they're jingoists and they're isolated and they've been told not to leave their country because everything they'll need is there. You know, like America, 75% of Americans don't own passports, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Well, I think, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether I completely agree with that. I think there's... um. A lot of people without... Oh, some people is to do to their access to resources. Some people can't afford to get passports and have their yeah. own documentation. And some people have got no, no, no hope of going abroad yeah. for a holiday. You know, um, I think that some of the, the... One of the things that I enjoyed most was seeing the Brexit support in people who live in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> Just for, off you go, go on, have a march. They had a march. <laughs> They're having a march around Benidorm, <laughs> banging on a drum, calling for Britain to leave the EU. And suddenly they sort of go, Oh, what does it mean, me? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it, this is part of the thing about politics is, is that actually the right are very good at just going, They're your enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Fear. Fear is being used to control us and it's been going on for a long time but you see that's but that's where proportional representation becomes really important because it means that you feel you have a say in it right that, that you feel that you can actually affect change and that idea of hope the idea that you have agency of your life and your environment is absolutely critical to all of this and i'm 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 you know look i'm a big fan of of um I don't know where I describe myself politically, sort of socialist, but I mean, I, 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 a lot of, uh, I'd call it grassroots socialism or, or, or sort of slash of anarchism in there. Um, 
and and a little bit of Bolshevism in the fact that I'm desperate to actually sort of hang most of the Tory party. Um, I, I'm I'm a big fan of the lamppost solution. So it's it, you know I know you're going to cut that bit out. I hope, I hope, I hope, no, we we'll leave it in. I hope you we'll don't. We're in. all for that. I mean, myself personally, I prefer the uh, economic castration of political parties. Strip. So basically, you treat a Tory like you would an ailing company. You strip them of their assets. You strip them of their access to resources. You you appropriate those resources to more deserved people, and then you say to them, "Well, if it's so easy to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I've taken all of it. Go ahead, just like the rest of us have to, yeah. and see how that works yeah. out for you." There is your bootstraps. Yeah. In fact, I'm taking your bootstraps. Find some bootstraps. Oh, yeah, as a part of my bootstrap tax. Why don't you try and find some? <laughs> Since it's so easy, so now I've got a bootstrap tax. That's that's the way it is. It is. Uh... An incredible subject, and it, it's happened again, Dane. It's like the golden question buzzer because we have only taken on one question in today's episode because it was that good. Mark Sorry. smashed it. No, 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 it, no. Means we, it means you have to come back. It means, it means yeah, you have to come, come back. back basically. Oh, man, I'd love to come back. I've enjoyed this so much. Oh, it, it's fantastic. And I've got to say, just because, you know, our listeners are from a wide mix of groups and ages and you know, cultural followings. Mark is an absolute fucking legend. Like, honestly, like when I was growing up watching your show on Channel 4, Mark, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. Like, and, and I I look forward to you coming back on the show and I can pick, can pick your brain about what that was like to live through. Cause, um, if you can find it, guys, I do believe it's it, you can find it online. And oh, probably... yeah, you can find some stuff. And we've actually started to put, we're, we're, we've kind of, during lockdown, we put together these little shows where we did the best of, oh, good. Right, of, awesome. of the shows that we did. And it was very lovely going, because, you know, Dane, you know what it's like. You're only as good as your last gig. Yeah. Like, comics have that thing. We're only as good as our last gig. So actually, when people say, you know, I've been going for 35 whatever years, and I look back, 37 I think it is, and, and I look back and somebody goes, oh, you, you know, you did this, you did that, and I'm going, no, but I was gigging in Bath last night. <laughs> and I really smashed it. It was really, really <laughs> fun. Or, uh, I love that. You know, that's, what, that's how you think. Yeah. So actually going back to it all, and going, oh, this is some of this still stands up. Some of this is really good. That's the best part of it is that because you are approaching your creativity uh, in a humanitarian way, those themes are going to remain timeless. And there's always going to be this need for human beings to triumph over adversity, to have triumphs of the human spirit. And so they're always going to be able to see the parallels in terms of the work and the discussions you were having 30 plus years ago. And how does ring true today? You'd be surprised if you cut a few of those up and put them on TikTok. People would be like, exactly, because... Especially now where there's been a certain level of uh, commodification of activism. And I say to people now, especially you've got to be very careful now because uh, activism or just at least conceptualizing resistance was something that artists always endeavored to do and was part of our identity as artists. And that identity was commodified. And we've been um, infiltrated by influencers who pose as artists, but they're actually artists who begin their careers beholden to corporations that they represent. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The whole idea that uh, uh, as creative people is that we present uh, every joke, right? You can argue every joke has got an element of subversion to yeah. it, right? And I would argue this because every joke is a story, right? If you look at the classic rule of three, you know, um, you, you know the Barry Cryer gag about the parrot. Do you know the parrot gag? Which is his famous parrot gag, which is, Woman goes to a shop, asks for a, sees a beautiful parrot, said, oh, can I get that parrot? And 
it's only a fiver. And the, the bloke said, I should warn you, it's only a fiver because it's got really foul mouth because it grew up in a brothel. So, you know, <laughs> so she takes the parrot home, takes off the cover. The parrot looks around and goes, oh, new place, nice place, like it. The woman's two daughters walk in the room and the parrot goes, oh, new girls, nice girls, like it. Woman's husband walks in through the door and the parrot says, hello, Keith. Now, the point <laughs> <of> that- <laughs> <laughs> the point about that that's a classic gag right and oh, it is a classic rule of three right one the parrot looks around and sees the house the parrot looks around and sees the young women and responds to both in the same way so you're setting up a convention and then you subvert the convention mm-hmm. with Allo keith right so it's a beginning a middle and the wrong ending yeah. Right. That's yeah. how jokes, that's the whole thing of a joke, that it's got something that it's unexpected. So for me, the very nature that it's got, that, that something has got a creative story to it that brings up something that's not expected, has got a creative and, and subversive element. George Orwell used to say each joke was a tiny revolution. I don't think you'd ever met Jim Davidson, but <laughs> what I mean was, it was, it was, you know, that, that in many ways he, he was right, that actually this natural urge to laugh, to share, to be with each other. Yeah, def- it's, definitely it's, rebe- it's definitely an act of rebellion. It's you, it's you actively conceptualising something which contradicts what's supposed to be unanimous or held belief. That's what the kind of a joke is. It's, it's a trivialization of reality as it's suggested to you. That's why it's so easy to do jokes about yourself, right? But yeah. it's, also, it's also every joke that you tell about a government, every joke you tell about where you live or how you live is a way of saying it should be better. Yeah. It's, ca- it's caustic idealism. It's just acerbic idealism. That's all it is. I've always found, you know, the people that are most vociferous in their condemnation of government is because they're yearning for a better reality and they're just yeah. trying to, you know, start that conversation. The more, the more you attack the government, people go, oh, you're so cynical. I'm not cynical. I believe there's a better way. You're the yeah, cynic. Yeah, it means you're a true romantic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're the cynic. They're the conformist. You're the true romantic that's uh, uh, trying to yeah. peel for a better life. Exactly. I totally understand I that sentiment. I believe that we can create a better world because we haven't got an option. Yeah, yeah, that's the main well, thing. There's a famous, uh, there's a famous quote uh, from I think it's, uh, David Graeber, uh, who's uh, uh, you know that guy. Come across him? No. Uh, uh, that we made the world and we could very easily make it different, uh, which is uh, the most simple thing that anyone ever said, yeah. but yeah. incredibly eloquent. Dane, we're gonna. I'm just gonna work out when. We're getting Mark back, right? Well, this has only been one I, episode. I He's got to come back. I see you as the Palpatine to my Skywalker, and I'm ready to be <laughs> muted and taught how to move forward and propose these ideas. Right. You know, you've 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 set you like Belgian at the Devil. I think was the last book I read before I became a comedian. I remember sitting in my public library reading it and thinking it's amazing, but also thinking, "Fuck, we need to take care of our public libraries." Yeah. Because, you know, we talk about how yeah. literacy and um, is the precursor to uh, oppression of, you know, um, historically um, oppressed classes or social groups, then people not having access to public libraries. That's already that's already the I beginning think of you're that. Absolutely right. I mean, there was a, but there was there was this comes from a sense of of uh, uh, if you go to the original, there were working men's clubs. Working men's clubs are really underrated. Right. There's a whole load of baggage that comes along with them. But I know mates of mine who live up in Featherstone in Yorkshire, and he remembers going to the miners club with his grandfather every morning. And his grandfather would go there 
get a cup of tea and read the papers before going into work. Yeah. And the papers had a big rod that, that, and you could clamp the rod to the papers. So you, so it'd be kept nice mm. and you couldn't nick it. <laughs> so you sit there and read the paper. The idea that, 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 that used to be libraries in pubs that, yeah. that, that are now sort of coming back in this, in a funny old way that you'd go into a, a into a pub because workers, that was the space they had. Yeah. You'd go in there and you'd find books that, you know, this is why literacy is so important is because this is a way of expanding your mind. Even if you don't like what you've read, you've got a reason for not liking it. Yeah. You know, this is, this it's is, not, it's, a, an, it's an analytical tool rather than a suggestive one. The thing about media is that when that's, that's the curation of information and it's presented in, to you in a way that whoever owns said media wants it to be presented to you as opposed to, being able to look over facts yourselves. It's like, you know, I say people, when you see in tabloid newspapers, they talk about scientific experiments. It's like, even when I did science experiments in secondary school, I had to do at least one page of hypothesis and methodology. And this person gets to put that down to an entire column from a university study. So yeah, it's, it's for me, comedy and what we do is that it's almost, it's for me, we're arming people in the same way court jesters do you, arming people with, being able to conceptualize an alternate reality, but also just through leading by example, the courage to show dissent to established, uh, to established um, paradigms of power. Just to say something, you know, in the same way your teacher and academic institutions teach you conformity, it's normally the class clown that fights back against that. Okay, let me just say one thing. You're going to have to fight to stop me getting back on. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Mark, it is being a joy. And, and, and Dane, we, we want to know, Mark, you're going you're gonna to be up in Edinburgh this year, you think? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. I'll be up for this. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. be hoping to catch up with you again soon. And obviously, we have said to our readers, uh, we've given them your amazing bibliography. But Mark, where can our listeners find out more about your good works, past, present and future? Uh, there's a, a website, it's Mark Thomas Info. You can go and have a look at that. Go on to Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I've also accidentally, I was in the bath literally two days ago and I thought... I really, uh, during lockdown, I stopped reading as much. And I and I started reading things that were less complex. And so I thought, uh, uh, this year, I thought, no, I'm going to really make a concerted effort. So I've set myself thing, I went, right, I'm just going to read a book a week, and that's how it's going to be, right? And actually, I've loved it. I've loved the discipline of going, it's going to be... So on the, I was in the bath, and I just had my phone, and I thought... I wonder if this, and I sent out a tweet going, would anyone be interested in forming a lazy readers book club on Twitter? <laughs> and so now we've we've set up a book club on Twitter. So and it's uh, and it's open to everyone. You put forward a suggestion. I'll put it all up on a short list and we vote and then we'll have a meeting on Zoom. Love and it. I love this idea of a Twitter book club to for all of us to get involved in and just all raise the game. Community, right? That's what you were talking about before. That's, right? the, that's the key. We're a social species of uh, homo sapiens before anything else. And before things change, we're going to have to remember that fact again, uh, which we'll do yeah. with the help of uh, amazing people like Mark Thomas. Thank you so much for coming on the Mark, podcast. Mark, thank you so much. We will see you again for part two. See you soon. Cheers. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at danebaptweets or Instagram at danesnaptiste. Our guest was Mark Thomas. You can follow Mark on Twitter at MarkThomasInfo. The show was produced by me, Howard Cohen. 
Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Insanity Group. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.